On July 22, 2019, Officer Albert Saunders was driving around on his normal patrol route in Manitoba, Canada. When up ahead of him, he saw a truck run a red light at an intersection. The officer quickly flashed his lights and signaled to the truck's driver to pull over. Inside were two young men who appeared to be in their late teens. They looked nervous and scared. He told them he'd watched them run a red light and they needed to be more careful. The teens just nodded in agreement and apologized. Wondering why the boys seemed so unnerved, the officer decided to search the boys' vehicle, but didn't find anything suspicious. The only items in the back were survival gear and maps, pretty common belongings for people driving in that area who liked to camp or hike in the wilderness. Realizing he had nothing to keep them further, the officer told the boys to be more careful driving and sent them on their way. As he watched them drive off, he had no idea he was letting two killers go free. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Let me take an opportunity in advance to let you guys know that my entire family and myself came down with a pretty bad cold over the last week. I didn't want to delay this episode any further, so please forgive my croaky, stuffed-up voice. Hop in. We're going on another road trip, and it's going to be a bumpy ride. In early July 2019, China Deese was anxiously waiting for her mother to pick her up and drive her to the airport in Charlotte, North Carolina. When she heard the ding of a text message arriving, she glanced at her phone to see a message from her mom saying, I'm here. China quickly typed out a reply saying, You can come in for a sexy. Then she typed LOL as she recovered, correcting herself and typing sec for second. Her mom came in the door, teasing China, saying, Who are you calling sexy? This interaction between mother and daughter, one similar to so many that we have with our friends and loved ones, would mean much more when it became one of the last her mother would ever have with China. China was the youngest of her mother Sheila's four children. She was 24 and the last to leave the nest. Since birth, her parents would describe her as the wildflower of the bunch, according to an article written by Michael Graff for the Charlotte Agenda. She loved to explore the world, far from her parents' nesting grounds. After graduating from Myers Park High School, she would visit 13 countries over the next six years. She paid for most of these trips by working in hostels and for nonprofits. The reason for her flight that morning was to meet up with her boyfriend, Lucas Fowler, he was also the youngest of four children. He was 23 years old and a tall Australian with long hair and a scruffy face. He'd recently been working in northern British Columbia on a cattle ranch. The couple met in Croatia in 2017, and a few months later they drove her father's 1996 land cruiser across the United States. They carried their love across the country to Yellowstone National Park, then down to San Diego, where they left the land cruiser with a friend and crossed the border to explore Mexico and South America. Afterwards, Lucas would come home to Charlotte with China in the winter of 2018 and live there with her for two months. Her family grew to admire him. The two rarely spent time apart. They adorably even began to look alike, wearing hilarious ugly Christmas sweaters in one photo and matching black and white sweaters in another. As much as they enjoyed each other, by early January, Lucas had exhausted his 90-day visa allotment for the United States. 
he decided to take a job in British Columbia on a ranch. Sure, he'd be 3,000 miles away, but it was a heck of a lot closer than it would be if he went back home to Australia. Once in Canada, his bosses quickly recognized that Lucas had some mad skills as a mechanic. He fixed the ranch vehicles, and when he coaxed an old blue 1985 van into working again, his bosses were so impressed they ended up giving it to him. With this generous gift, the couple hatched a plan to take a two-week vacation in July, just the two of them, driving and camping in northern Canada. Miles away from each other, the couple worked hard to save money for their vacation. China worked through the spring and summer, sometimes working double shifts on the weekends as a server at a Tex-Mex restaurant. Her co-workers loved her, and some were almost as excited as she was for her vacation. They couldn't have known that a few weeks later, her co-workers would be standing on the roof after closing time, hosting a memorial in her honor. They would spell her name out in candles and release balloons into the dark sky. Her plan was to spend a week with Lucas at the ranch and then two weeks camping. With her goal just around the corner, she used what little extra cash she had to buy Lucas a couple gifts. A large blanket with a moose embroidered onto it and a pair of men's size 12 work boots. As she prepared to go to the airport that morning, China was struggling with a decision. The boots were far too heavy and too big for her carry-on luggage. She would have to wear them. Her mother would crack up, thinking of China walking around the airport in size 12 men's boots. She'd look like a 5-foot 6-inch miniature Bigfoot. Doing the typical mom thing, Sheila had packed a snack bag for China, who tried to turn it down at the departure's gate. Sheila parked the car and jogged around the backside to give China a hug, then watched as she turned and walked through the airport doors. China carried an overstuffed suitcase and a carry-on bag with the moose blanket rolled up and tied to the straps. She'd text her mother at each stop, once in Chicago and then Vancouver, and then on Sunday, July 7th, she sent her last text messages to her mom. They read, I made it to the ranch. Just now got Wi-Fi and Lucas says hi. She spent the next week working at the ranch alongside Lucas. She learned how to use a lasso and posted pictures to her social media like she normally would. When the much-anticipated road trip finally began, she'd post a picture of herself and Lucas in the van just before taking off. She's in the passenger seat leaning back with her arm out the window to hold the camera, and he's smiling over her left shoulder. That picture was taken on July 13th. She'd also make a phone call to her mom. One more time as they pulled away from the ranch and began heading west along Alaska Highway. She told her mom they probably wouldn't have Wi-Fi for a few days, but not to worry. The day China and Lucas left Fort Nelson, they stopped at a gas station. Lucas pumped the gas, and China washed and squeegeed every window. A gas station security camera would capture China standing on a concrete step, draping her arms around Lucas's neck in a loving gesture. One day later, the old van they drove would break down 12 miles southeast of Laird Hot Springs. They pulled over on the side of a very busy highway. Laird Hot Springs is a popular camping destination, and it was the peak tourist season. It wouldn't be long before another couple would pull up next to them. One of them was a mechanic and offered his assistance. The mechanic said Lucas explained the problem perfectly and the van had flooded, but that Lucas seemed to know what to do. 
The concerned couple were assured that the young lovebirds were fine, and they drove away. China and Lucas would go on to an enjoy an impromptu picnic while they waited for the engine to drain. Or something. One thing that's emptier than my wallet is my knowledge of mechanics, so let's move past the broken van. On Monday, July 15th, as the sun rose over the dense Canadian wilderness, it also rose over their two dead bodies. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, quickly responded to a deceased person's report on Highway 97. The bodies were located near a blue van with Alberta plates, which was registered to Lucas Fowler. At approximately 10.22 a.m., police arrived on the scene and confirmed the license plate. They noted the back window of the van was shot out. The deaths appeared to be the result of multiple gunshot wounds. Neither of the victims had any identification. Because of this, police were unable to determine if the dead man was the registered owner of the van. A search warrant was issued to search the van for evidence. The investigation of the crime scene continued for two days, during which police did find identification belonging to China and Lucas. Their families would be notified of their deaths that evening. As part of the search of the crime scene, various items were taken, including shell casings. The shell casings were stamped with the numbers 101 and 75, which would indicate the year and the location when and where the bullets were made. Based on the minimal evidence they had, authorities approved a media release requesting public assistance for more information. They would receive several tips, including surveillance videos and witness statements. One witness would report seeing the van broken down, and he stopped to render assistance. China and Lucas said they planned to call a tow truck eventually. Another witness would observe a male speaking to the couple at approximately 10.40 p.m. At this time, the van's back window was intact and not damaged. This was the last time the couple were seen alive. Based on the witness information, a composite sketch of the man was created and released on July 22nd. This unknown male, along with his vehicle, an older Jeep Cherokee with a black stripe on the hood, was being searched, but not for long, and wouldn't have led police in the right direction anyway. This person still hasn't been identified. Tragically, the double murder wasn't the last in what turned out to be a vicious spree killing. On July 19th, six days after they left on their trip, an autopsy was performed on China and Lucas. The pathology simply concluded that they both died of multiple gunshot wounds. It appeared that the killer stood right behind the victims for at least some of the shots. On the morning of that same day, while the coroner was examining the bodies, the RCMP responded to a vehicle fire on Highway 37 near Deese Lake, British Columbia. This was miles away from Laird Springs. The truck had been completely burned, but the license plate was determined to be from a Dodge pickup truck registered to a man named Cam McLeod. He was from Port Alberni, British Columbia. About an hour after arriving on scene, a highway worker would stop by the crime scene and tell the police officer on site about a deceased male he had found approximately two kilometers south of their current location. The dead man was an older male who didn't match the physical description of Cam McLeod. The victim suffered injuries to his head and body, including bruises and burn marks. Initially, the cause of death was unknown. Police would not release further details of the injuries out of respect for the deceased's family. 
What police didn't know was if the deceased man was connected to the vehicle fire or the missing registered owner. A search warrant would be drafted to search the truck. During the late hours of July 19th, police would speak with the family of the truck's owner, Cam, who was 19. They learned that he left Port Alberni with his friend Briar Schmigelski, who was 18, on July 12th. Their parents would describe the men as boys who were on a trip to northern British Columbia because they were looking for work. The family would share photos of their trip with officers, and they shared texts that showed the boys had vehicle troubles. The last contact with family members was on July 17th. A check of their record showed both boys had limited interaction with police and no criminal record. Based on the facts at the time, both men were considered missing and possibly were also victims. Police dogs, search and rescue, tactical troops, and air services were utilized in efforts to locate the missing men in the Deese Lake area and to look for further evidence. As police processed the lone male's body, initially they found no obvious cause of death, but on arrival at the coroner later in the day, the body was moved and investigators saw what they believed to be a single entry and exit wound. This told the investigators there had to be a bullet somewhere. Later on, a single shell casing was found, and it was stamped with the numbers 101 and 75. Those numbers are familiar to us, but at the time, the two separate police forces were unaware of each other's cases. Deese Lake officers would find surveillance video at a nearby local store. One of the staff recalled seeing a truck that matched the burnt vehicle's description on July 18th. This little store was the only one in town where people could buy fuel and would have been a likely stop for any travelers. The video showed Cam and Briar purchasing various items, including donuts, chocolate bars, and two pairs of gloves. Remnants of these items would be discovered in two separate areas near the Deese Lake crime scene. Furthermore, a damaged SIM card and a Walmart employee identification card belonging to Cam was also located. These boys needed to be found. According to most reports, the teenagers were fairly unremarkable. Some remembered that Briar enjoyed military battle games and was the more outspoken of the two. They had been best friends since they were children. Cam's family, who moved into the Port Alberni area 20 years ago, were a mostly middle-class family who kept to themselves. His father was a commercial fisherman, and he had a younger sister. His maternal grandfather was a well-known member of the community, and worked for the Port Alberni Parks and Recreation Department. About 20 minutes from Cam's house, on a small busy highway and across from a trailer park, was a small home belonging to Briar's grandmother, with whom he lived. His parents had divorced when he was young, and neighbors said the boy took refuge in several other people's houses, but was eventually ostracized when he posted a swastika on social media. His mother worked at a local homeless shelter, his father reportedly grappled with homelessness and mental illness and wasn't always there for his son. The boys, who had both worked at Walmart, had impulsively quit their jobs and decided to find work somewhere, maybe anywhere other than Port Alberni. Back in Deese Lake, it was decided that the media would need to be involved to help find the two missing boys. At the same time, police asked for help with identifying the dead man they had found. They released a composite sketch of him to the public. As the investigation progressed, police were sifting through the remains of the burnt vehicle when they found a burnt metal ammunition container. 
Although the container was damaged, there were still identifiable numbers on the top of the canister. They also seized a gas nozzle from a jerry can found near the burnt truck. Good news would arrive with the media release. Cam and Briar had been seen at a gas station in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. Police reviewed surveillance stills from the gas station which showed Cam and Briar. They seemed fine, and no one was with them. Of note, they were now driving a gray-colored Toyota RAV4. Later that same day, a witness came forward to the RCMP with information about the boys. This witness knew them both, and believed the boys may have been involved in the murders. This was the first time police learned that Cam and Briar may have been capable of killing someone, and it conflicted with the original statements made by family and friends. That evening, a woman named Helen Dick called police and reported that she believed the composite sketch was her husband Leonard. He was a 64-year-old botany expert who lectured at the University of British Columbia. He was on a camping trip in which he hoped to see grizzly bears. Leonard was a studious man. He had spent two decades researching plants. His specialty was seaweed. He had a bachelor's degree in marine biology and a master's and Ph.D. in botany. Physically, he looked like he would make the perfect Santa Claus at Christmas time. He had white curly hair, a beard, and his smile was jolly. He was the father of two children with whom he shared a love of nature. His final camping trip was one of many he took alone. Leonard left his Vancouver residence on July 16th in his silver Toyota RAV4. Helen told police her husband would often sleep in his car after a long drive. She said his last gas purchase was made on July 18th at approximately 8 p.m. It was purchased in a store only 20 kilometers away from where his body was discovered. Around the same time, police realized they had related cases. This was based on the spent shell casings found at both roadside murders. The two teams met, and it was determined that Cam and Briar were no longer considered missing, but were suspects who had stolen a murdered man's vehicle. On the morning of July 23rd, a media release was completed, and the public was advised to be on the lookout for Cam and Briar, that they were dangerous and should not be approached. Over the next couple of days, search warrants were executed on the boys' residences, looking for ammunition or any planning materials, but there was nothing of note found. Ten news releases and six press conferences would be held to keep the public informed. Police would share that on July 12th, the two boys left their homes. That same day, they purchased one SKS semi-automatic rifle and a box of 20 rounds of ammunition from a Cabela's store. Surveillance videos and footage from a couple of gas stations and stores would show them making their way toward Leard Hot Springs. Several hours later, their vehicle would be identified on another surveillance video north of Leard Springs. This proved they were in the area at the time China and Lucas were killed. Yet another video would show Briar purchasing a jerry can of gas from the gas station, and a witness would observe an older Dodge truck alongside the highway with a hood up and two young males working on the engine. This witness offered his assistance, but the young men declined his help. Another witness would come forward with a crazy story. This man was driving westbound on the Alaska Highway and pulled off the road to take a nap. Within five minutes of being parked, a truck with a camper drove past him and stopped about 50 yards ahead. 
A male got out of the passenger side of the truck with a gun and walked towards the nearby tree line. He then started moving through the nearby tree line towards the witness in a tactical or hunting stance. At the same time, the driver of the truck started backing slowly toward the witness. The witness thought this was all too weird. Unnerved, he drove away, passing the driver of the truck. As he glanced inside, the driver covered his face with his hands, and the witness was unable to see the driver's face. He described the truck as a big white GMC. At the time, the location and descriptions fit Cam and Briar. According to the timeline, they would have already killed China and Bryce, but hadn't yet come across Leonard. But it was clear to police they were planning another killing. They continued northwest, where they were caught again on surveillance video from a gas station. This was where they were seen for the first time in Leonard's vehicle. They'd also be caught on a video in a hardware store, purchasing a crowbar and some electrical tape, which they used to put racing stripes on the RAV4, maybe in order to disguise it. Over the next couple of days, they'd be seen on surveillance video at several different gas stations, making their way east all the way across Canada towards northern Manitoba. This is where the officer, at the beginning of the story, would pull the boys over, not knowing they were newly wanted fugitives. The following day, however, he would see the news and recognize the boys from the previous day. Now police knew the direction the boys were headed, but then they seemed to have vanished in the middle of nowhere. They were somewhere inside what was considered to be Native Cree Indian Territory. Towns were hours apart. This area, people always left their doors unlocked because no one felt unsafe. But one small, isolated community would soon be inundated with fear. On July 22nd, a family was driving down a small dead-end road with plans to pick berries when they saw smoke in the distance. They approached what turned out to be a burning vehicle. The flames were huge and they couldn't get near it. The family called police right away, and while awaiting their arrival, they noticed footprints. It looked as if the vehicle had been pushed into a ravine, and there were matches on the ground, which indicated the vehicle had been set on fire. In time, local police put two and two together, realizing this was the vehicle that most of Canada had been asked to look out for. A search area would be decided, but by this time the fugitives had a two-day head start. The family who had found the burning car was left with a creepy feeling. Had the two boys watched them approach? And had the family's fate been discussed by the murderous teens? Billy Beardy, the patriarch of the family, was a pillar of the local community. He was a First Nations Cree Indian, an accomplished hunter, trapper, and fisherman. He was well-loved and would likely have helped the two boys if he'd been asked to. Instead, he'd be asked by police to help find the fugitives. If anyone knew where they might go, it would be someone like Billy someone who knew the area like the back of their hand. They first searched along the nearest riverbank. They thought it would have been easy to float along the river, and there were several cabins the boys could have hidden, but they weren't found. Police dogs and drones were brought in, but still the boys weren't found. The little town, called Fox Lake, was only seven kilometers from where the vehicle was found. The residents were scared. They kept their children inside for days while police searched. One man was quoted as saying, you'd notice two extra policemen in the community, let alone 50. The sheer number of people involved in the search was daunting to a lot of the locals, 
but at the same time they felt more protected. Luckily, some evidence would be found. Cam's backpack, including his wallet, some clothing, and his ID, proved the boys had moved towards a fast-moving river. A day later, a man calls police saying he found a sleeping bag near the mouth of the Hudson River. Police flew over the river again, and in doing so, they found a small boat on the banks of the river. Billy Beardy would tell police that if you took a boat that size out onto the river in recent conditions, you'd pretty much be dead. There would often be eight to ten foot waves, and the water moved fast. Even so, Billy would willingly drive a boat to the area to conduct a search. When the men were put on shore, they carried guns, believing the teens would be there, and that they were armed and dangerous. The bank of the river was steep, and someone standing at the top would have an easy sight line down to anyone standing on the shoreline. The officers would be easy targets, but the brave men moved forward, with helicopters monitoring the situation from overhead. The boys were nowhere to be seen. Crews searched the water, both above and below the surface, but once again found nothing. They decided to work backwards along the shoreline from the sleeping bag toward the backpack they had found earlier. Over the next day, they continued searching. They moved quickly, speeding in a boat past rocky outcroppings and small ravines along the shoreline. Billy Beardy was riding with police, looking for anything suspicious. He only had seconds to scan an area before having to move on to the next. Suddenly, he noticed a raven take flight. Maybe it had been startled by the noise of the search. Billy knew if there was a raven standing on the shore instead of in a tree, it was probably eating something. Ravens ate carrion, or dead things. He decided to say something, and they turned the boat toward the shore. As they pulled closer, they saw one body, and then a second. They drew even closer, and the smell hit them. As they approached the bodies, police saw one gun sitting on the top of a hill. The other was in the hands of one of the dead bodies. The bodies would be identified as Cam and Briar. They were found 5.5 miles, or less than 10 kilometers, from the car they had set ablaze. Along with the bodies was a camera. It had belonged to Leonard Dick. On it, the two boys would leave a series of videos in which they admit to the killings and claim to have no regrets. They said they had plans to hike to the Hudson Bay, then they wanted to hijack a boat and go to Europe or Africa. Once they reached the river, they decided it was going to be too dangerous for them to traverse, and that they probably would have to kill themselves. They both agreed on this decision. They then shaved in preparation for their deaths, and they made a final video, which was supposed to be their last will and testament. In it, they asked to be cremated. The boys died in a suicide pact, one where Cam would shoot Briar and then himself with the same gun used in the murders. Finding a motive in this case would be an enduring mystery. Why would two boys with no previous record of violence and who seemed excited about finding new jobs suddenly become murderers. Or maybe they had murder on their minds the whole time. One of the boys would respond to a message from his girlfriend, telling her he was seriously never coming back. And just a few hours after they left their homes, they bought the guns they would use in the murders. Breyer's father, Al Schmigelski, remained convinced his son did not set off that July day with plans to kill. 
It wasn't premeditated on my son's part, I'll tell you that right now, because he took all his possessions with him. This was said in an interview with the Globe. The two had exchanged text messages the morning Briar left, talking about contributing to the boy's savings plan and his upcoming birthday. Mr. Schmigelski said his son's trip north seemed spontaneous, but not nefarious. He took his good suit, he said. He wanted to feel good. He wanted to look good. When the video snippets were found, police shared the last will and testament recording with their families. According to Al, Briar said, cremate me and throw my ashes in the garbage. Al believes that describes how beaten down Briar was all his life. Stephen Fowler, Lucas' father, who was the chief inspector for a police department in New South Wales, would describe his son's work ethic and his love for China, who he had never met, but he knew that his son loved deeply. He said China became a part of their family the day she stole Lucas's heart. He was expectedly angry with the killers, but he graciously expressed some sympathy for the boy's parents. By the end of July 2019, five families grieved a lost loved one as part of this horrible event. Whether guilty or innocent in death, the feelings of sorrow, heartache, and confusion each family had were similar. Perhaps that is the beauty in this tragedy. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a nice rating or review. Join Twisted Travel and True Crime on social media, or even sponsor the show. There are links in the show description to make these options easy. Speaking of sponsoring, I'd like to send a huge thank you to two this week. The first is to Tracy C., who has returned to sponsor the podcast a second time. In addition to my huge gratitude, she'll be getting a little something in the mail for her generosity. The second thank you is to Mona S., who enjoyed the episode on Dr. Conrath. I really enjoyed working on that one, too. Thank you, Mona. I'd also like to thank Biddy G.O.G., hope I got that right, um, who gave the podcast a five-star rating and said, thank you, thank you, no banter, you had a, a beautiful voice, and Sesu222, who says, five stars, love this podcast, the stories are not stories you would hear anywhere else, and Sandy is a great storyteller. Thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to review the podcast and for your rating. You listeners and supporters of the podcast are the reason I keep doing it. Thank you so much for listening, and to all of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seeds, and safe travels of all kinds.